Uh, the progress. Okay, good evening, everyone. Okay, at home and in person. So our topic for tonight is Mount Zion, one of my favorite places in all of Jerusalem. I go there, make pilgrimage every time I make a trip to Israel. So we have to ask ourselves, what is precisely the meaning of Zion, Zion? Is it a place? Is it a national group? What is it? And while the question is interesting from a purely intellectual perspective, it takes on added significance in light of the thrice daily petition, May our eyes behold your return to Zion with mercy. Well, what is Zion? Where is Zion? Moreover, the modern political movement for Jewish national liberation is called Zionism. Therefore, it behooves us to have an accurate understanding of what the word means. The Bible, the Hebrew Bible, mentions Zion over 150 times. However, it is inconsistent in its usage of the word. Zion can refer to the nation of Israel. So, for example, Yeshayahu chapter 51, verse 15 what does that mean? To say to Zion, you are my people. Well, that means Zion is what? A people, a national group, not a, pl- a plot of land. Okay, so we're going to see it can mean a few different things. But at least for this verse, it means a national group. So, for example, also in Yeshayahu, chapter 49, verse 14, the Haftor And Zion said, God has forsaken me, the Lord has abandoned me. Again, this seems to be referring to a people, and the Gemara and Brachot says the following. Amoresh Lakish. Amra Knesset Yisrael the congregation of Israel says before God, Ribono Shalolam, Master of the Universe, Adam no Yishali Shorishona, man marries a second woman above and beyond his first wife. Zochema Serishona still remembers the, the deeds of the first wife. Atazavtani but you have abandoned me and forgotten me. So we've been totally lost, says the nation of Israel. Zion, in this instance, is a group of people, not a parcel of land. However, however. Zion can also refer to the land of Israel, the land in its entirety. So, for example, in Yeshayahu, chapter 10, verse 24, Lachen ko amar Hashem, tzvakot al tira ami yoshev tzion. Don't worry, my people, who dwells in Zion. So, what does it mean? My people that dwells in Zion. Zion is a place. Not specifically any one city, but the totality of the land of Israel. Where do we most obviously find the idea that Zion is a place and not a specific city, but the totality of the land? So how do we end the Tisha B'Av morning service? After Eletzion. Okay? After Eletzion. Ki nicham Hashem Zion, nicham that the Lord has comforted Zion, has comforted all of her ruins, Vayasam midbara ke'eden, and made the desert like Eden. Hashem, like the garden of the Lord. So that's referring to not just Jerusalem, which is an, an urban area, 
but all the fields and orchards and vineyards of, of the land of Israel is Zion. Okay. But alternatively, Zion might be just the capital of city of Jerusalem. How do I know that? In that example, it's couplets. Zion and Jerusalem are one and the same. Alternatively, Zion can refer to not the totality of Jerusalem, but specifically the Temple Mount, Mount Moriah, on which Solomon builds the first temple. Where do we find this? In the book of Yoel, Joel chapter 4, verse 17. Shochein bitzion har kodshi. So shochein bitzion har kodshi. Zion is the holy mountain. Fine. So it could be any and all of these things. But is there a, his, a historical development, a trajectory, where it goes from one to the other and evolves? The answer is yes, and we can pinpoint how. Okay. So to, to determine the original meaning of Zion, one must analyze the biblical passages pertaining to David's conquest of Jerusalem. The Jebusites, the Yevusi, they inhabited the region. David ascended to Jerusalem from his royal base at Hebron and prepared to attack. What did the Jebusites do when they saw David coming? Who knows their Bible? What did they do? They mocked him and said, you can't defeat us. That even if we put out the blind and the lame of our society, they could repel your invasion. But they were wrong. And what does it say? That David captured the stronghold of Zion. It is now the city of David. Shmuel Bet, Parakei, Pasuk Zion. I'll read it to you. David David. So Zion was a Mitsuda, was a military stronghold, a fortress of some kind, a fortified compound. And it became Ir David, the city of David. So the original Mitsudat Zion becomes Ir David. Good. Well, Zion was a, a fortress within the city of Yavus. And upon capturing that military position, David renamed it in honor of himself as the city of David. So it refers to specifically the stronghold and not the entirety of the city. How do we know that? From a pasuk in Divrei Hayamim, which makes clear that Sion and Ir David is not the city at large. It's a a fortified compound within a larger city. David. The Mitsuda, the stronghold is called Ir David. Then he builds the city beyond the fortified area. Okay. Sha'ar uh, Ha'ir, the remainder of the city. That the Sha'ar Ha'ir, the remainder, is something other than Sion. Okay, well. We find another example in the post-Davidic era, in the next generation, where Zion, Sion, as a fortified place, plays an important military diplomatic strategic role. Who's the next king after David? Shlomo. So Solomon, uh, what does he do? He engages in diplomatic alliances by way of marriage. Good. He marries Pharaoh's daughter which was the linchpin of his grand diplomatic strategy. But Solomon had to take measures to protect his foreign wife. And in the early years of his reign, Jerusalem was an open and unprotected city without walls. The only original, uh, only the original Jebusite stronghold of Zion, Zion, 
was sufficiently fortified to be a place where you, you could keep your prized possessions. Notably, your, your foreign wife was the daughter of the of Pharaoh. So what did Solomon do? Book of Kings tells us, Solomon married, married Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David to live there until he had finished building his palace and the house of the Lord and the walls around Jerusalem. So Jerusalem will become a walled city, a fortified city, but in its earliest phases was not. Only Zion, the little enclave, was fortified, and there you put your prized possession, the daughter of Pharaoh. Okay. Solomon moved... Well, the other ones may have been married, may have been the daughters of lesser tier uh, kings. Is there a remnant of this? I can only think of the Peskiahu wall. We, we, don't, we don't have remnants of the Solomonic era yeah, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So Solomon moved the Ark of the Covenant from the tent in which his father had placed it decades earlier to the newly constructed temple. We quote from Book of Book of Devarim. Then Solomon convoked the el- convoked the elders of Israel in Jerusalem to bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David that is Zion. So Zion held the ark until it was ready to go to Mount Moriah. The ark was moved from one location to another within Jerusalem. It follows then that Zion, which is the city of David, is merely a section of a wider city. It's not the totality of the city of Jerusalem, nor is it the Temple Mount. So at least in Solomonic times, the Temple Mount is not Zion. It's not Zion. The historical books of the Bible never vary in identifying Zion City of David with the Davidic stronghold. We see this in the book of Nehemiah, the book of Dirahayamim, and so on. However, the prophetic and poetic books of the Bible, and for the post-biblical writers, the name Mount Zion could sometimes connote the Temple Mount. So here I'm showing the distinction between historical writing of the Bible, which is very accurate, and poetic writing, which takes liberties with identifying places, a more relaxed approach towards the names of this or that location. So the prophet spoke of the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. So the Tishayahu chapter 8 in a prophetic text saying the Lord dwells not on Mount Moriah, not in the Beit HaMikdash, on Mount Zion. In 161 BCE, there was an interaction between Jewish leaders and a duplicitous Seleucid general bent on suppressing the Hasmonean rebellion. We're talking about right around when Judah Maccabee died, after the Hanukkah story, a few, about two or three years later. And who's the, the general? Nicanor. Okay, Nicanor. Nicanor went up to Mount Zion. Some of the priests from the sanctuary and some of the elders of the people came out to greet him peaceably and to show him the burnt offerings that had been offered for the king. So what do we see according to the book of Maccabees, written about 2,100 years ago, 2,125 years ago, that what Mount Zion is? The Temple Mount. That Mount Moriah, the home of the sacrificial cult, is Sion. So can we now explain why it is that the name traveled from what was the original Ir David to Mount Moriah? Now, where is Ir, where is Ir David Relative to Mount Moriah. Give me a direction. North, south, east, west. North. I mean, it's south. South. Okay. So we know that today because there's an Ir David. There's a museum there. There's Hezekiah Tunnel. People have been there. It's a tourist attraction. As recently as 150 years ago, people didn't know that. 
right? There was a, a very much an uncertain uh, thing, uh, open question, where this other ear David was. But suffice it to say, even if we didn't know where it was, we knew that Ir David and Haramoria were not the same place. The question is, why did the name Sion migrate from that Ir David, wherever it was, to Mount Moriah? So there's a plausible explanation for why the name moved. In the Davidic period, Zion was the site of the Holy Ark and of an ecclesiastical regime unrelated to the contemporaneous mosaic tabernacle at Givon. That's a mouthful, I just said. Where was the Mishkan? The Mishkan was in the Midbar, then Gilgal, then Shiloh, then Nov, and then Givon, and then the Beit HaMikdash was built. In the era of post-Shiloh, after the Philistines took the Ark and after it was brought back to the Jews, there was a, a worship of a Mishkan at Nov and Givon. However, where was the Ark of the Covenant? In the Davidic times, it was in an ohel, in a tent, not the Rebbe's ohel, but the ohel of a tent, uh, somewhere in Jerusalem. And in Solomonic times, before the, tent, the, tent, the, the Ark was moved to the Mount Moriah, it was in Ir David, in Sion. So there was religious worship in connection with the Holy Ark that wasn't the real Mishkan. And then the ark was moved, and it was moved to the official house of worship, namely the new temple. So what's going on here? Zion means cultic center of sacrificial worship, where there is an ark, ark of the covenant. And so when you move the ark to a new place of cultic worship, the name moves with the ark. That Zion goes with the object, the artifact. But where was this original Zion, this year David? So as I said, archaeologists, well, people didn't know about it for the longest time. But archaeologists in the 19th and 20th centuries have proven that the city of David was located in the southeastern hill of ancient Jerusalem. Ir David today is in Jewish enclave in the Wadi Chilwa section of the Arab neighborhood of Silwan, just south of the old city walls. Jews from the post-biblical period through the pre-modern period, however, did not know that. We know it today, but that's new knowledge to us. Okay. Well, Antiochus IV, the bad guy of the Hanukkah story, sent a representative, Misark, to build a protected compound for sinners overlooking the Temple Mount. Why would he build a compound for sinners? Who are the sinners? The Mit, Yav, Nim. Okay, his guys. We, we like the Maccabees. We like the good Jews who didn't switch their, their colors, who didn't, didn't uh, abandon their religion. But the Mityavdim were the types who liked the Hellenization of society, and they were the favorite sons of the, the Seleucid regime. And an area was built on top of the Temple Mount called the Acra. Have you heard the Acra? It was in a corner of the Temple Mount where... The bad guys, the Jewish bad guys who were in cahoots with the, with the Seleucids would hang out. Thereupon, the, they fortified the city of David with a strong high wall and strong towers so as to have a citadel, the Acra. The Acra was higher than the temple. It was a convenient vantage point from which to observe and disrupt the activities of the temple courtyard. So if you're a Gentile, you know, a heathen king administration ruling Jerusalem, and you want to make sure the Jews don't rebel. And rebellions typically happen where? On the Temple Mount. It's a place of religious nationalism. You get all feisty. 
So you want to have a spot where you can look down on the people and disrupt them if they're getting too, getting too boisterous. Well, the Acra could not have been to the south of the temple on the lower hill of ancient Zion, because that would not have been a good vantage point. It would be too low. It would have to have been north of the temple. Where exactly? The northwest corner of the Temple Mount. And yet, to the author of 1 Maccabees, that became known as the City of David. Well, wait a second. That was not the original City of David. Why is he calling this the City of David? Now, he might have erroneously believed that David's original City of David was located that far north. However, the author of the Anchor Bible version of the book of Maccabees, this guy, Professor Jonathan Goldstein, offers an interesting idea. Listen to this one. Jews had long been accustomed to name their citadel and city after King David. We name everything after David Melech Israel. The natural retort to the Seleucid foundation of a Hellenistic Acre overlooking the temple was to insist that that citadel actually was what? Not a Hellenistic innovation, but rather the original city of David. Meaning you guys didn't beat us and build a a watchtower over us. That watchtower is Migdal David. Sound familiar? Where is Migdal David today? It's right near Jaffa Gate. Did David build it? No way. He didn't build that, the the high tower, but we call it Migdal David. All right. So that's his theory. In his description of the topography of Jerusalem, Josephus mentions that the citadel of David was on the city's higher western hill. He does not mention Zion in this description, yet one might conclude from the, that first century Jews believed the western hill was the original Davidic Zion. If he's calling it uh, Ir David, or Migdal David, and Ir David is Zion, It's not a stretch to say that in the first century when Josephus was alive, they thought the western hill was Sion. At the time, the southwestern hill of the city was unpopulated but uh, in David's time. But by the first century, a thousand years later, it was enclosed within the city walls. And the Kohen Gadol lived there. So what's going on now? We now have three different locations of Zion. There's what we call Ir David, the real one that we know today is in Silwan, in an Arab neighborhood. There's Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, and there's a western hill a kilometer further over to the left that today is known as Haitzion, Mount Zion. So what just happened? It began in the southeast, it moved to the northeast, the name moved, and then the name moved to the southwest. How? misinterpretation, passage of time, ambiguity, confusion, what have you. So in the first millennia of the common era, I wouldn't say things got nicer. Uh, It it depends upon the century you're living in. Okay, so in the first millennium of the common era, Jerusalem's southwestern hill came to be known as Mount Zion. Scholars claimed that it was unlearned Byzantine Christian pilgrims who gave the name Uh, gave the place its name. What happened? They noticed when they came from Europe that the western hill was higher than any other peak in the city and that it had a flat top. They erroneously assumed that this was the Temple Mount and they believed it was properly called Mount Zion. So here, Hartzion, that we call Hartzion, likely is given that name because stupid Christian pilgrims in the year 400 or 500 thought that was Mount Moriah and thought that was Harabias. But didn't Herod build up 
the mountain, the Temple Mount? Yes, of course. And he didn't build it up higher than the area? No, no, it's not higher. Hartzion is higher than Maharabite. Okay. The, the location became a holy place to Christians as a site of the Last Supper. After the Islamic conquest of Jerusalem, Mount Zion became sacred to Muslims as the site of King David's tomb. Although the actual tomb most certainly is not located there, the view was logic was a logical extension of identifying the hill as Mount Zion, since David and most of his dynastic successors were buried where? Ir Zion, he Ir David. So if you're going to call this Zion, and you know David was buried in Zion, hey, David must be buried here. Well, he's not if you, if you identified the place incorrectly. But if you claim, if you think you're correct in your identification, hey, David must be buried here. So Muslims who revere David as a holy man from the ancient past create this notion of Kever David. The Jews will buy into it as well eventually, as I'll explain. Okay. Lindy, isn't there a thought that the Last Supper was in the Armenian quarter? There is such a view. However, the, the, the majority of the Christians believe that the Seneca on Mount Zion is the place of the Last Supper, and I'll get to what other things I think happened there. Okay. For, for centuries, Christians and Muslims battled for control of the sacred space on Mount Zion. Jews were lucky if they even had minimal access. The Ottomans naturally gave preference to the Muslims. Custodianship of the site was from the 16th century up until 1948 in the hands of the Dajani family. The Dajani family was one of the so-called families, uppercase F families, who among the Palestinians ran the show together with the Husseinis, the Nashashibis, and the others who were the machers of Jerusalem society for a few hundred years. The Dajanis would add the word Daudi to their family name to glorify themselves as the custodians of David's tomb, Daoud, David, David. So Dajani Daoudi is the family that runs the tomb. What did they do to make it into an Islamic shrine? They covered the sarcophagus with an embroidered cloth that had Quranic verses on it. Now, if you want to make it Jewish, what do you do? You remove that cloth and put a new cloth. You buy from, from the Jew, from the Gifra or the Judaica or five times whatever. Zindel Berman, it says, Kimitzion Tetze Torah. You just changed it from the Arabic to a Hebrew, and all of a sudden it's a Jewish holy site. It says donated by the Schwartz family. By the Schwartz family, of course. So now, Mount Zion, as I mentioned in an earlier class, was supposed to be incorporated within the walls of, the, of Jerusalem as constructed in the 1530s by Suleiman the Magnificent. But the engineers performing the work failed to do so. Legend has it that they stole the money that they, they pocketed from having a smaller area enclosed, that they didn't have to use all the construction materials, and that Suleiman found out about this, not because he personally arrived, since he did not, he didn't go to Jerusalem. He was up you know, uh, in, in, the, in the imperial capital. He never made it as far as Jerusalem, but he heard that they had stolen and that the walls did not include all the holy places or what was supposed to be included. And he had them beheaded and that their, their corpses were buried inside Jaffa Gate. However, the, while the tour guides may say that that's true, other scholars have claimed those were not the uh, engineers and architects who were beheaded. 
Rather, there was just some random Islamic uh, sheiks who were buried there, and the, and, and the architects were buried somewhere else. Okay. In any event, that's what the, the tour guides like to say. So the historical accident of Mount Zion having been excluded from the walled city would prove relevant in the 1948 war between Israel and the Jordanian Arab Legion. In May 1948, Jewish forces made repeated attempts to enter the old city and to save the Jewish quarter. So we discussed this at some length in a prior talk uh, about how the Jewish quarter was a pretty small enclave. And there were about 1,500 people there. They were supplied by uh, biweekly convoys that were under the auspices of the Red Cross. But then those convoys were stopped. They really were running out of food, running out of ammunition. Uh, efforts to, to rescue them by the Palmach and by the Irgun failed. And um, the, these efforts through Zion Gate, through Shahr Tzion, ultimately proved unsuccessful. The last attempt in July of 1948 after the ceasefire was a big bust. The, the Jews, David Shaltiel, the, the Haganah general, thought it was going to be a victorious uh, attempt, and it turned out to be an abysmal failure. So ultimately, the city was divided between Jewish, Israeli, and Arab Jordanian sectors in a deal cut by Moshe Dayan and Abdullah Tell. And the border abutted the old city wall, but left most of Mount Zion in Israeli hands. Mount Zion was the only section of pre-modern Jerusalem on the Israeli side of the Green Line. So, how does Israel respond in its terms of its actions in the post-1949 period to the fact that it does control a little tiny slice of historic Jerusalem, meaning most of it is beyond the border. You can't go there. Kotel, Harabait, Jewish Quarter, Mount of Olives, all gone. Even Mount Scopus is basically gone, even though there's a little enclave there. So what do you do that you have Mount Zion? How can you maximize the significance of Mount Zion? Okay, good. So from 1949... Until the liberation of East Jerusalem during the Six-Day War of 1967, efforts were made to transform Mount Zion into a Jewish holy place. The key figure in this uh, undertaking was Rabbi Dr. Shmuel Zanvil Kahana, who was the Director General of Israel's Ministry of Religious Affairs. He organized religious services at Har Zion on major Jewish holidays. And, as I mentioned, he replaced the Islamic parochet over the sarcophagus of Kever David with a Hebrew parochet and turned what had been an Islamic shrine into a Jewish shrine. The Arabs did complain bitterly, as we shall see. Another major thing that they did at Mount Zion, and this was a smart move, was to have Israel's first Holocaust memorial on Hartzion. It was known as the Martef HaShoah, the Holocaust dungeon or the Holocaust cellar. It still exists to this day as a small little museum. But what happened? It had a religious character, unlike Yad Vashem, created in the 1950s, which we'll discuss at length when we discuss Har Herzl, which is in about two weeks from now, or four weeks from now. Um, the Martef HaShoah was a religious place. Um, what was included? 
recovered Torah scrolls that were damaged from the, from the ghettos and the communities of Europe, and ashes from a communal grave at Orianburg concentration camp were taken from Europe and buried on Mount Zion in the Martefa Shoah. So the remains of the Jews who were killed in the Shoah were brought to Eretz Yisrael. There was also thought of doing the same thing at Har Herzl uh, near uh, Yad Vashem, but for a massive amount of ashes from the vicinity of Auschwitz. But that ended up never happening. We'll discuss that in a few weeks. So the Martefa Shoah, the Tfilot, the, the, synagogue, the prayer services on the holidays, these are efforts to build up the Jewish character of Hartzion. David Ben-Gurion's government favored these Judaic religious efforts as a means of asserting Israeli national sovereignty over a dangerous and contested border region. Remember, the border, the Kav Ha'ironi, the municipal border, was not an international frontier. De facto it was. But de jure, what was it? Nothing. It's just an armistice line. So does anyone recognize Israeli sovereignty over the Israeli side of that line? Some people do, but not everyone. And why not everyone? Because what was Jerusalem's status supposed to be? International, International right. And in the, in the year or two that follows the War of Independence, there will be serious efforts made by the UN to reimpose their initial solution for Jerusalem. And Ben-Gurion will have to push back against it terribly. Um, so he wants every last inch of de facto Israeli-controlled Jerusalem to be seen as a Jewish territory, rightfully part of the Jewish state of Israel. How could that have been considered international when at the end of the war it was a land grab yeah. for everybody? Correct, for everyone. So, I mean, there was a thought still? Yes, in, De- in December of 1949, there was an effort made to internationalize Jerusalem this is eight months after the armistice was signed. It didn't go anywhere. And we'll talk about a little bit about how that plays a role into is Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. We'll discuss the Knesset in about three lectures from now uh, and the issue of Jerusalem, the capital. Okay, so an upstairs room of David's tomb, the, uh, the David's tomb compound, became known as the president's room. What president? The Nasi Medinat Yisrael. Who's the president of Israel? So first Chaim Weizmann, and then Yitzchak ben Svi, and then Zalman Shazar are the three Israeli presidents in the pre-67 era. But especially Yitzchak ben Svi, he loved going here, going to this room, where he would hold official meetings with foreign dignitaries and heads of state, just to prove the point that we can, that this is Israel, sovereign Israel, and I will meet with dignitaries of foreign countries on this spot to prove the point. And they went for it. Yeah, yeah, some did. Yes, yes. The matter became diplomatically sensitive in 1953 and 1954 when the Jordanian and Iraqi governments issued formal complaints about the Judaization of Islamic holy places. You may have thought that the term Judaization of Islamic holy places was like a Hamas slash Yasser Arafat post-1967 phenomenon. You know, where they complain in the UN that the Jews are transforming East Jerusalem and making what was supposed to be Islamic into Jewish. Yes, it happens post-67, but it even happens pre-67 on this spot, Mount Zion. Um, Even within the Israeli bureaucracy, 
there were those who objected to the artificial religious transformation of Mount Zion, meaning there's something fake, something, you know, saccharine about this whole thing, that where is the holy place? Harabait. Where had the place of Tfilah been? Kotalamaravi, or the synagogues of the Jewish quarter. Was Mount Zion a significant Jewish place prior to 1948? Eh, not really. I mean, maybe some people went to Keredavid to, to Davin a little bit, but it was not the main attraction. It became the main attraction by default. Okay. It was not the only, only the government, however, that for political reasons had an interest in aggrandizing Mount Zion. Rather, Thousands of Israeli Jews enthusiastically ascended the slope of Mount Zion and climbed to the roof of David's tomb from where they could glimpse the inaccessible holy places beyond the border. Meaning, if you wanted to see the, mount, the Temple Mount and you wanted to see the upper layers of stone of the Kotel, from what vantage point could you see it? So there were a few rooftops in Israeli Jerusalem where maybe, just maybe, you could get a, gl- a glimpse. Maybe the, the, the King David Hotel from the roof. But from Mount Zion, it was the closest vantage point with the best visibility. So people would go there. All right. Well, many, moreover, many Israelis uh, in, the early, in the 50s and early 60s came from the Middle East or North Africa, especially from Morocco. What is the most important thing in Moroccan Judaism? The Kivrei Tzadikim, the graves of the righteous. So if you go on a trip, like a trip to Jewish Morocco, they have these kosher trips now to Morocco. What do you see there? You see a whole bunch of cemeteries that the government, by the way, Mohammed VI did a very smart thing. He, he put millions of dollars into sprucing it up to get the tourism money. Um, and, and the Jews do it. But Moroccan Jews, they love the Kivrei Tzadikim. So for them, David's tomb, if it really is David's tomb, is an attraction in and of itself. Now, granted, I'm telling you from an academic point of view and a historical point of view that it's not David's tomb, but they seem to not be bothered by that. Historical accuracy be damned. It's Kever, Kever David. We want to go. It's a big deal for us. Okay. Right. Okay. So, but don't we do the same thing with Kever Rachel? Historically, we don't have any basis of Kever Rachel being Kever Rachel. All right. Uh, understood. Understood. So now, despite the danger of being in the crosshairs of Jude- Jordanian snipers, Jews made the pilgrimage to the so-called holy place of Mount Zion. So it was dangerous. It wasn't such a simple thing to go to Harzion. First of all, the road, which we'll discuss in a moment, was not paved. You had to climb up the hill. Um, and the Jordanian snipers are on the wall of the old city, just above Zion Gate. And they can shoot you at any time. They see you wandering around. They're not supposed to. There was an armistice. But an armistice does not stop a random pot shot from a hot-headed soldier who's interested in killing. So it was dangerous. And occasionally there were fatalities. Over the course of a 19-year stretch, there were a few fatalities. Okay. Well, let's now discuss what's up there on Mount Zion uh, today and what historical artifacts are there. So first of all, I wanted to mention the road. The Rehov Ha'epifior, the Pope's Road. What's the Pope's Road doing on Mount Zion? Answer very simple. In 1964, Pope Paul VI visited the Holy Land. And as I say, he visited the Holy Land because the Holy Land is a a Christian term, not a Jewish term. And he did not want to visit the state of Israel 
because the Vatican, the Holy See, did not have diplomatic relations with the state of Israel until 1993. What were the outstanding issues that prevented the establishment of diplomatic relations all throughout that time? So a few things. Number one, Catholic doctrine about supersessionism, that you know, the, the biological Israel is finished as a covenantal people and is not supposed to be, in their theology, restored to its ancient homeland. Yet the Protestant view may be that the Jews have to go back to the land of Israel and they'll convert at the end of days, but that's a Protestant viewpoint. The Catholic viewpoint was, we're finished. The fact that the state of Israel emerges goes against their whole theology, which is why when Herzl appealed to the Pope in 1898, 1899, the Pope dismissed him with a wave of the hand to get out of here. Okay, so that was the major reason why there were no Catholic-Israeli relations for the longest time. The other... Whatever. Time passes, time heals the old wounds. But the other factor was the status of Catholic-owned churches and special locations in the the land of Israel that became part of the sovereign state of Israel. What is the relationship between the government and the church authorities? That had to be worked out at the highest levels of negotiation. And had not been done yet by the mid-60s. But Pope Paul VI wanted to go to the Holy Land. So he visited uh, the Jordanian side, went to Church of Holy Sepulchre, went to Church of Nativity, did his thing in the West Bank in East Jerusalem. And then he's got to go to Israel because he wants to go to Nazareth and he wants to go to the other places that are on the Israeli side of the border that are of Christian significance. So he agrees to meet the Israeli government delegates, not in Jerusalem, but in Megiddo, near the prison. Why Megiddo? I'm not really sure. It's near Nazareth, whatever it is, it's up north. So the chief rabbis were really annoyed by this. And Rav Yitzchak Nisim, who was the Sephardic chief rabbi, boycotted the whole thing. He says, I'll meet with the, 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 the Pope in his office at the Vatican, if and only if he's willing to meet me at Heichal Shlomo in Jerusalem. And since he's not, and he's avoiding Jewish Jerusalem, uh, to hell with him. So this was a very controversial trip fraught with ill will, but he wanted to go to Mount Zion. And there was no road from uh, the Ma'aleha Shalom up to, uh, to, to the top of the hill. The Jordanians and the Israelis made a, a negotiated settlement. They made a deal that in honor of the Pope's visit, the Jordanians allowed Israel to construct a road to get to the top of the hill. And then we're not going to shoot you. With peace, we're not going to shoot you. So the Rehov HaPifior still exists to this day. You've probably driven on it to go up to, to Shar Tzion. And it's where the, where the, where the, the bus, uh, um, the parking lot is, near, near the gate. Well, this road turned out to be very relevant during the Six-Day War in facilitating the Israeli conquest of the old city. So the Jordanians messed themselves over. They made a little peace deal with Israel for the Pope. It turned out to bite them three years later. Okay, fine. Now, what's up there on the mountain? So the biggest feature on Hartzion is Dormition Abbey, which is a Germanic sponsor, German-sponsored Catholic Benedictine church that was on the remains of an old, old church from medieval times, but was built after the Kaiser's visit in 1898. So it was under construction from 1898 to 1906. 
uh, it's actually a very nice building. Uh, uh, the exterior is very pretty. And even the interior, which I saw, I didn't go inside, but I looked on the inside uh, from the doorway. It's actually a nice modern looking facility. It doesn't look like an old rundown church, like the Church of, uh, of Holy Sepulchre or Nativity. Um, then next to it is the Seneca. So this is the building where on the upper floor, it is assumed to be the place where the Last Supper occurred. So the Jesus and the apostles had the Last Supper, supposedly, on this spot. It is also the place, supposedly, where Mary, mother of Jesus, died. So that's another reason why they regard it as a Makam Kaddish. Downstairs is King David's tomb, which today is a shul. It's a, if you go to it today, it's a synagogue, basically. There are people davening there. They have a minute every now and then. Um, fine. What about dead people? So Mount Zion is maybe most known for its churches and it's for its uh, you know, places of deep antiquity. But in more modern times, it became a burial ground for non-Jews. Remember, where are the Jews being buried? Okay. Mount of Olives, Haraz 18 across the way. But where are the Goyim being buried? Especially the Christian Goyim. There's no good cemetery for Christians in Jerusalem before the middle of the 19th century. Because after all, there weren't that many Christians. There were some, but not too many. With the influx of the European consuls and uh, you know, imp- European imperialism dominating the city of Jerusalem and the buildup of all these monasteries and churches, you need a place to bury people. So on Mount Zion, there are two Christian cemeteries. The bigger one is the Protestant cemetery. It was established in 1848, which is right around the time when these European consulates were developing their power base. Who's buried there? Well, the Episcopal Church established it. And so British war dead will be the dominant uh, feature of this cemetery. British war dead from which war? So the answer is World War I and Allenby's conquest of the city. But also those British who died in defense of the British mandate. For 30 years, the British mandate ruled the country, and a lot of their officers were shot and killed. By whom? Jews. I mean, <laughs> you're good terrorists, and sometimes the Haganah too, and the Lehi. But also, there are some who were buried there who died in the rubble of the King David Hotel bombing. So this Anglo-Protestant cemetery functions up until 1948, and then even after 1948, there's an occasional burial as well. What about the Catholic cemetery? The Catholic cemetery was smaller. It's further to the east, so if you're coming down the hill from Zion Gate, it's to the left rather than to the right, and uh, it's behind a gated fence. Who's buried most famously in this cemetery? The most famous righteous Gentile of all time? Oscar Schindler. No, Wallenberg has no burial place. We don't know what happened to him. Oscar Schindler, who died at the age of 66 of liver disease in 1974, had his body brought from Germany to Jerusalem, and he was buried. And his tomb is a place of pilgrimage for many people. Okay, at the end of the movie of Schindler's List, it ends at his grave. And who's there in the in the movie? So actual survivors who were on uh, in his factory, who were on the so-called Schindler's List, and their children, and Liam Neeson, the actor who played him, 
is the last one in that to file through to put a rock on his grave. Okay, so Schindler's grave is in the Catholic Franciscan cemetery. What other um, attractions are there in connection with Mount Zion? So the answer is those pertaining to Israel's uh, side of the war of 1948. So first we'll get to the tunnel. There's the Mount Zion tunnel. Have you ever heard of the Mount Zion tunnel? So the Mount Zion tunnel was an attempt to reinforce the Jewish enclave First, that was still in the old city when there was one before it capitulated in, in late May of 48. But then after that, the IDF position outside the city walls on Hartzion. How are you going to get personnel there and materiel there? If you go through the Gay Ben Hinom, the Valley of Hinom, coming from the Yamin Moshe Montefiore uh, uh, side of the hill, the Jordanians are going to see you and shoot you and you'll be dead. And the supplies will not reach the Israeli enclave at Mount Zion, which is sort of fortified in, in the buildings and under the cover of trees, meaning the guys who already made it to Hartzion, they're relatively safe because there's no active conflict with the Jordanians and they're covered. But if you try to reinforce them or supply them, you're going through a no man's land, basically, an open field, an open valley, and then you got to go up a hill. So what did the, the, the IDF do? They built a tunnel reinforced with some concrete just below the surface that went about 250 meters from the Yamin Moshe side down and up so that you could get some stuff and supplies to the Hartzion enclave. The problem with the, the Mount Zion tunnel is that there was only so much you could fit in a narrow tunnel. I mean, like in the Hezekiah Tunnel, you can't exactly be carrying bulky equipment. You're lucky if you don't bang your head, if you don't bend your knees. So this tunnel was a small tunnel. By the way, does it still exist? So most of it was destroyed in the beautification of Geben Hinnom and the building up of Mount Zion after the war, after 1967. But there are still sections of the tunnel that are extant. You can go on YouTube and look up a video of a tour guide taking them, you know, the cameraman through the Mount Zion tunnel. If you go to Israel today and go to the intersection where you can go down towards Derech Hebron, Derech Bet Lechem, and up towards, uh, towards the Dun Gate. So right at that intersection, there's a, a piece of the tunnel that still exists. And you can walk through it. Okay, so that was the tunnel. But the tunnel had to be replaced because it wasn't getting the job done. So what, what replaced it? The cable car. Okay, the cable car was an idea conceived by Uriel Chefetz, who had been a member of the Irgun. He was the chief of the engineering department of the Irgun. I wonder how many people were in the engineering department of the Irgun, probably five people, but uh, he was the chief. And the Irgun had disbanded already in the summer of 48 and become a legal political party in Cheirut under Menachem Begin. But in December, Chefetz, I think, was at that point now in the IDF, and he came up with the idea, well, let's have a cable car running from the hill on the, uh, on the, Derech, um, the Derech Hebron side of, the, of the, uh, the valley, up on the top, next to what had been a Turkish prison, and is today the Mount Zion Hotel, okay? Run it directly across through the valley, 
to basically just shy of the Dormition Abbey. It was 280 some odd meters, or uh, maybe longer, maybe 300 meters across, and it got the job done. It could only carry about 500 pounds at any one time. So, a per- so if a person was in it, a person weighs whatever he weighs, plus additional supplies, or it was without a person in it, just supplies, shoot it down, another guy will send it back. Um, the ride lasted two minutes, and it only functioned at night. During the daytime, it was lowered down so that it would not be seen by the Jordanians. And the Jordanians never realized it was there. It was only functioning for about six months, from December of 48 through the middle of 49. After the middle of 49, then it was no longer necessary because the war was over. There was an armistice signed between Israel and Jordan, and Israel could easily access the Temple uh, Mount Zion without worry about being shot. I mean, there was always a worry about being shot at, but it was not likely to occur from a military perspective that uh, the Jordanians were going to open up full force with machine guns. So, ah, so now what happened to the cable car? The cable car was not decommissioned. They no longer used it, but there was always a fear that war would break out again and that it would become militarily necessary. So the cable car was kept in a functional uh, uh, working status all the way to the Six-Day War. And then it became a moot point. But uh, at that point, it was preserved for historical reasons, just to teach people the lessons of the the past. However, it was not right after the Six-Day War that it became known to the public. It was not until 1972 that the Israeli government decided to let the public know that this thing even existed. And then it became something of a tourist attraction. They made a museum by the, by the Mount Zion Hotel, and you could look at the cable car and see how it operated. Okay, fine. That's the story of the cable car. Um, today, Mount Zion, Jewishly speaking, has, yes, it has Kever David, which is an attraction, and there are some Jews who live in apartments on the mountain, but the most significant Jewish uh, institution there for the last bunch of decades has been the Diaspora Yeshiva. The Diaspora Yeshiva is located on Haaretzion. Is there uh, goodwill or ill will between the various religious denominations that are living in close quarters on that small spot of Haaretzion? So sadly, there have been episodes in the not-too-distant past of fighting between Christian denominations and spitting and graffiti incidents done by yeshiva students towards the Christians. That uh, various church walls had been defaced with Hebrew writing saying, you know, uh, the Ovdei Avodah Zarah are destined for Gehinom, which is, which, is, which, is, which is interesting because where is Gehinom? Right there, okay, so <laughs> it's a play on the location, but that you're, you're, if, you're, if you're an idolater, you're an idol worshiper, you're an Ovid of Rosara, you're going to go to hell. Um, th- whenever there was an outburst of Jewish anti-Christian, either uh, vulgarity or even a little violence, it would make the news locally and even internationally, it'd be a brouhaha. So uh, we pray for the Shalom of Zion 
And when we, play for, when we pray for the Shalom of Zion, we pray not only that uh, there should be no war, but that the people who actually live there on so-called Zion get along with each other and they don't cause trouble with hooliganism and vigilantism and graffiti, but rather people can play peacefully and nice, not nicely in the sandbox together. Um, that, that's the story of Mount Zion in a nutshell. Now, the, the name Zion, as I've tried to get across today, was not initially for that location. What was the name of that location early on? It had no particular name. Um, it was just the southwestern hill of Jerusalem, of the Jerusalem of antiquity. But it became, through this sequence of events, known as Hartzion. It became a Jewish attraction out of necessity. Is it still a Jewish attraction? Hardly so. After the Six-Day War, people no longer went to Mount Zion. Why? You had the Koto, you have the Harabait. So it, it, it's been a roller coaster ride in terms of Mount Zion's significance in the eyes of Jewry. I like it. I like the place. It's a nice, quiet place. It's a peaceful, serene. I like to look at the buildings. I like to look at the cemeteries. I like to go through Charzion. I like the place. But I, I, I will acknowledge that it has greater Christian significance today than it does Jewish significance, but only because of the developments of, of, of Sheshit Hayamim, six days, that made access to the even better places, the juicier places possible. Okay, questions? You had mentioned the different derivations or the meanings of Sion. Yeah. It may not even be pertain to this, but if you talk about Mount Zion National Park, yeah. among the Christians, right. do they have any specific meaning or anything uh, or derivation of the word Zion? So for the Christians, the question was, what is the derivation of Zion from a Christian perspective? They're not worried about the initial Davidic stronghold of Jebusite times. That's, uh, you know, for the, for the Bible scholars and for the Israeli archaeologists. But from a Christian point of view, Zion is... The, te- the, the seat of God's uh, 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 divine presence resting on earth in temple times, they would regard Zion as the, 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 the Har, Har Kodshi, based upon Book of Psalms, Book of Isaiah. And having adopted that perspective, they would rename all sorts of places around the world Zion. But back to the Holy Land the place that they actually call Mount Zion today is what we call Mount Zion, the Southwestern Hill. And why is it important to them? Last Supper, Death of Mary, uh, historic cemeteries, historic churches, and the like. What was that? No, they believe that that, uh, the return will be to where the crucifixion was, Golgotha, which heard the Church of Holy Sepulchre. Okay. Uh, any other questions? We're good. Okay. So next time we shall. Um, there was a question to uh, unmute. Okay, I will unmute. Ain Sukunda, where is Leslie? Uh, allow participants to unmute. Okay, you can unmute. Okay. Hello. Yes, Tina. I need clarification. When one goes into the Yaffa Gate, yes, where they have the sound and light show, isn't yeah. that 
Matsuda. Isn't that a Matsuda where they have the sound and like... Yes, yes, that's the Matsuda David, Migal David, Tower of David. I'm all mixed up here. That yeah. is the original Migal No, David. no, no, not at all, not at all. Not original. No, no, no. We'll discuss that in a later session. Okay, so where is Kever David? Really? The real Kever David, we don't know exactly where, but it's in the Ir David in Silwan, what's called Ir David today. It's a, it's a East Jerusalem, down the hill from the Dun Gate. But so, but it's not in the Mount of Olives. No, 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 definitely not. So why did they say that? Why did they make that that myth? You know, the, the myth of the Davidic grave being on what we call Mount Zion is a product of the name Zion being applied to that location, and inaccuracies by Josephus and others and, and Byzantine pilgrims, they just got it wrong. They didn't know, but they, they applied the name and the name stuck. Okay, so in Silwan is the real... Somewhere, presumably, is the real Kever David, yeah. But it's not a tourist attraction, is no, it? No, it is. The, the Ir David is a major tourist attraction today, uh, but they don't tell you exactly where the grave is because they can't know that. Uh. Uh-huh. And what about all the the diggings and the refurbishing that they have? They have a museum that's in Silwan or right outside of Yerushalayim. There are uh, two. There's one that is in the so-called Ir David that's yeah. in Silwan on Rehov Wadi Chilva or uh, Rehov Ir David, depends on what you want to call it. And the other is in the archaeological garden inside the old city walls. Yeah, that's the one I think. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so there okay. are two of them. Yeah. Okay, we'll stop here. So next time. We're going to discuss Har Hazetim, Mount of Olives. See you in two weeks. What day? 14th? Two weeks from today. So today is... Okay.